Well, good morning. We continue our series, God's Priceless Promises. So the question is, how is your heart this morning? I think all of you would say, it's beating, amen? It's beating. I'm here, I'm vertical. Some of you <laughs> are in love. Some of you are full of joy and thankfulness. And I could do the list on and on, but I'm going to ask you to go a little deeper this morning. How is your heart this morning? Spiritually cold? Struggling? Deceitful? Wicked? Hard? Hard Hard-hearted? Is your heart this morning defeated? Does your heart contain splashes of lingering unbelief? Is your heart in... You tried to mask it, but it's an open rebellion, full of pride, fearful. I think more often than not, that's where we're really at. All this flows from our natural, sinful condition. And each of these issues set us back or prevent us from making spiritual progress in our lives. Amen? We don't like it. I mean, if, if we could put up here a, a video of what our hearts really were like this morning, would you want anyone else to see the condition of your heart? No. Because at best, it's, it's mixed. Now, you're here, so, so your determination and your love for God overcame the struggles. And you came this morning. But we're all strugglers. We all wish we could make more spiritual progress in our lives. And my question this morning is, are you tired of watching these issues and others impeding your spiritual progress? Yes or no? Yes. I am. There are days I'm exhausted with the struggle. See, our hard and calloused hearts need to have surgery done on them. And the author of Hebrews, the passage we're going to look at this morning, is going to tell us what God has provided for us to deal with our heart condition. Do you want to look at it with me this morning? I needed it this week. I, I needed to say, God, do some surgery in parts of my life and on my heart. So turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 16, page 1278, there in the Pew Bible. Let me give you some background. In chapter 4, the author of Hebrews warns his readers against unbelief and the hardening of their hearts in rebellion against God. And, and so often we look at those Israelites and say, I, I would never do that. Let's get real. I have time for one story from Israel years and years ago. In 1978, 
Barb and I had the privilege on a day trip to fly down to the Negev and the Sinai Peninsula, and we then took a bus ride from the air strip, because that's all it was, to St. Catherine's Monastery, where they found Sinaiticus and also Mount Sinai. And we boarded this school bus, and as we began to run down the road, the, the dust was just flowing in the windows. So we started putting windows up, only to realize that there were bullet holes in the side of the bus, because I think it went through the 67 war. The dust continued to come in, and it was choking us. And I began to cop an attitude. I paid extra money for this little jaunt here. I am choking on the dust. God, what is going on here? And all of a sudden I feel God's choker chain in my life. And he says, complaining, are you? You used to read the Old Testament and you would say, if I were one of the children of Israel, I would never do what they did. I would not complain like they did. They said, he said, you aren't following a million plus people in procession. You aren't following the herds behind. The, you are sitting in a bus, not walking a step, and you're griping about the dust. And I had a come to Jesus meeting because I saw my own heart for what it was. At that point, I was a complainer. And my heart was just as hard as the Israelites in the Old Testament. It was like looking in a mirror and it undid me. As you look into your own heart this morning, all of us have pockets of rebellion against God. And how do I know that? Because all of us choose to do bad things. Amen? We know better. We know what God's word says. We know what the spirit is asking us to do. And we walk the other way. In Hebrews 4, God promises a spiritual rest to those who will obey God, allow him to work in and through their lives. And so all of a sudden, in chapter 4, verse 12, he begins to teach them about the word of God. Our Bible, God's holy word, inspired, inerrant in the original autographs. But we're going to learn more today, and it's a passage that many of you have probably read. I want to take it apart for us. Verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Five qualities of the word of God. Number one, or A in your outline, living. Living. That's an amazing statement. This Bible has recorded for us the very utterances of a living deity. It's living. It's alive. It's unlike any other book ever published. Some of you have told me over the years 
in private that you think I have targeted you when I have preached. I'm sorry, you're not that important. And I can't figure that out. Because some of you have said to me, Pastor, were you in our home this week as my wife and I struggled through an issue? No. Did our kids call you? No. Because what you spoke upon spoke directly to the issue as if you were listening in on all of our conversations. Here's the truth. God's word is alive. And the Holy Spirit takes the living word and applies it into your lives. Some of you have said, Pastor, this is what you said. It so encouraged my heart. And I said, I, I walk away from that conversation and say, I don't think I said that. I don't tell them that. I have on a number of occasions went back and listened to my own message. Looking for that statement that this person swore that I had said to, the, to them. Folks, I never said it. But it doesn't bother me. You know why? Because the Bible is a living, breathing words of our God. So I can trust that as I preach, he is going to apply it into each of your lives, whatever you need this morning. I just have to be faithful in dispensing the truth that he has shown me. It's alive. It's not a dead book. The gospel from these words saves individuals. It's living. Secondly, it's active. And we just kind of roll over these words, living, active, and sharp. But it's active, which in the original means it's powerful. These words are effective in carrying out God's intentions in your life. Matter of fact, this word, as you read it and study it and listen to it, it is at work in you. Do you know that's why sometimes we don't like opening the book? Because we're dealing with our own set of disobedience. We have our own little pet things we like to just, and so we're afraid if I open the word of God, I'm going to look in a mirror and I'm going to see myself and the condition of my own heart. And I'm going to say, ah, that pinches. It's active. Thirdly, it's sharp. Sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't care what kind of edge you can put on that sword. I don't care how honed you can get it and how sharp it can be. It pales in comparison to this spiritually precise scalpel called the Word of God. It cuts into our minds. It cuts into our hearts. But please understand, it cuts not to harm us or to destroy us. It cuts to heal us. 
You go into the surgeon and he says, I'm going to have to open you up. Do you say, no, no, no. Can you do that without cutting me? No. But the surgeon or, or the dentist does not take glee in the cut. He takes joy in knowing that he is going to bring healing to your life. God's word is the same way. It's sharp. It's not a blunt intermiss that God's going to use to bludgeon us to death. No, it is a sharp, precise scalpel to cut out the hardness of my own heart. Fourthly, it's piercing. Piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. This word of God penetrates deeply into our innermost life. And sometimes we don't like that. It gets to places that we thought we could keep secret. And it pierces so deeply and so precisely, it can separate soul from spirit, of joints from marrow. Finally, this word of God is discerning. It has this uncanny ability to judge. God's probing truth of his word exposes our deepest feelings, our deepest desires, our instincts, our passions, and our motives. God knows me inside out. Amen? He knows you inside out. And he takes the living word and he does surgery on us every time we open the book for ourselves. There is no book like it. Therefore, I I have to keep my nose in the book. I have to, as much as it might hurt, because surgery can hurt, amen? But it will bring healing. What is his ministry? Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. See, none of us will escape. There are no secrets from God. And this passage says, one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what I have done on this earth. So if you're struggling spiritually, if you want to make greater progress, you must spend time with God in his word. That'll change. I must hear it, and I must practice it. And as he does surgery on my heart and on yours, it will provide healing for the hardness of my heart, which tends to develop over time. Secondly, he goes on in verses 14 through 16, and he talks about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. 
Now, in the Old Testament priesthood, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to be repeated every year. And they got to the point, it doesn't say this in the scriptures, but it says it based upon Jewish writings. They used to tie a rope around the high priest's ankle. Why? Because if he did anything wrong, no one could go in and get him out and not die themselves. So they said, okay, the high priest, if you don't do everything according to God's word and you fall over dead, we'll just pull you out from underneath the veil. But we have a great high priest. Look at verses 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our promises in that passage. Well, the first verses 14 and 15 to fill in your outline, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your confession. It does not say, hold fast to your salvation. Whose job is it to hold fast to our salvation? Jesus' job. We're in his hand and we're in the Father's hand. But the author here says, hold fast to your confession. Live out your beliefs through a lifestyle of commitment to the truth that you have been given. Let what you believe match with what you do. Hold fast to your confession. This was so important for the believers who were listening to this letter being read because they were going under persecution, great persecution. They were, matter of fact, thinking, you know, if I go back and become a Jew again, I will get out of this hot water that I'm in. And the author says, don't do that. Hold fast to your confession of what you believe. Why? Because of the position of Christ. He is superior to the Aaronic priesthood that you want to go back to. It says in verse 14, we have a great high priest. Secondly, he's passed through the heavens. He is exalted. And what that actually means is he has passed through the heavens. He has now entered the very presence of God himself to appear on your behalf and mine. That's what he's doing right now. And matter of fact, he just doesn't go in once a year and make sacrifice. He's ministering continually at the throne of God on your behalf and mine. Wow. 
I got to hold fast my confession. Jesus is up there interceding for us right now. He's also human. He uses the human name Jesus. But then he also calls him the Son of God. That's deity. Hold fast to your confession because of the position of Christ and secondly, because of the compassion of Christ. The compassion of Christ. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The first truth that comes out of this one verse is Jesus is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. See, Jesus felt the full force of temptation and the temptations he faced were real invitations for him to sin. And can I suggest this morning especially as the persecution on him became greater and greater, the temptation for him to say, I'm done with this. I'm leaving this veil of tears. I don't have to put myself through this. I don't have to look at the cross and suffer that. I'm I'm done with it. But he doesn't do that. He hangs in the buggy. He stays the course. He doesn't turn and run. He faces persecution. Second truth is, he is tempted as we are tempted. As human, Christ could be tempted. But as divine, he could not respond. He can sympathize with us in our infirmities, in our struggles, but he cannot sympathize with us in our sin. So if he was touched with the feelings of our struggles, he was tempted just like we are. Those truths, you know what they tell me? He is understanding of each one of us. Amen? He understands us. And I don't know what you're being tempted with this morning and the struggles your heart may be feeling, but Jesus gets it. But thirdly, in the midst of all of this, he remains sinless in his life and ministry. He's come through all of this victoriously. Our sinless Savior provided for us a perfect redemption. Therefore, hold fast to your confession. Don't bail on your faith. Hang in when the struggle and the persecution goes up. Verse 16, where we find our promise this morning, it says this, let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Fill in your outline, draw near. Draw near. Approach God. 
Move into his presence. His compassion invites us to a greater intimacy with God because Jesus understands us. And when we think of the word throne, pretty popular word in our culture right now, this image in the Bible represents the power and authority of God himself. And the author says, in light of the compassion, in light of the understanding of our high priest, we are then to confidently draw near to that throne of grace. But as you hear that, does something inside of you kind of recoil? Thinking about God's majesty and God's holiness and his place of power and authority in the universe, I feel so undone, unworthy. I don't measure up. See, I think I still see the throne of God as a throne of judgment. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here, the throne of God has been transformed from a throne of judgment to a throne from which grace flows like a river towards each one of his children. That's a very different picture in my mind's eye. See, we come to this throne not with fear and doubt, but he says in the scriptures we are to come to his throne with boldness, with confidence. That's a stretch in my thinking. But I forgot something. I forgot that the, our high priest, Jesus Christ, has made each one of us acceptable and he accompanies each one of us into the very throne room of God on high. With Jesus with me, who has cleansed me completely, who has given me his very righteousness and then he walks with me and said, I want you to meet my father. And the father wishes to bestow grace upon grace upon grace in each one of our lives. Throne of grace. We're to come into God's presence confident, without fear, that we have to practice. Let us then, with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy. We all know the definitions of these, but can I give you some different ways of look, looking at it? Mercy. Mercy is love responding to any misery in my life. That's what mercy is. As I'm approaching the throne of grace, do you know what comes to my mind? All of my failures. My hard heart. 
the things that I have just done wrong or failed to do even though he's asked me to do them and I walk before him and my failures overwhelm me. That's where mercy is. That's where mercy is flowed into my life and God says, don't, don't think of your past failures. Just draw near to me. Wow, what love. And then we're going to receive mercy, but we're also going to find grace. Find grace to help in time of need. Grace, divine enablement to meet any need. And to fill in the blank, because I don't want you to miss this, this phrase, to help in time of need, would you put in your outline there, grace in the nick of time? Because that's what it means. That's what it means. Grace in the nick of time. Just when I needed it. Our God is never late. Amen? Amen. Now, does he seem slow at times? Yes. Extremely slow. God, I wanted to see your grace last week. And God says, you didn't need it then. But there's going to come a point, you will need my grace, and I'm going to flood it into your life. Can we trust him for his timing? That's the question this morning. Can we trust him with his timing? If his grace is that freely given into my life and I'm going to find it at just in the nick of time. If I got it sooner, I wouldn't know what to do with it. I've heard people talk about dying grace. I now in ministry believe that. It's amazing how God provides his grace just when we need it. This grace gives us the strength through the demands of serving God and doing what he asks us to do. We come with boldness because we're aware that God has all the grace we need. Amen? All the grace. He has more grace than he knows what to do with. That's what saved us. I should have the boldness and the confidence to lay claim to his mercy and to his grace. So, please, take advantage of his availability for you and for me. What does this mean for us? It's one thing to experience God's saving grace. It's another thing to experience God's empowering grace. All of us came here this morning with things on your heart. Struggles, cares, concerns, broken relationships, things that only you know. Draw near. Draw near to the throne of grace. 
Do you understand that those words mean is he, he encourages us, he, he asks us to come to him in prayer. It's not just, well, I got to pray today because that's what good Christians do. No, the throne of grace wishes to pour grace into my life. And how does that happen? It often happens through my asking. James says, you, you have not because you ask not. Some of you need grace, but your heart is too proud to ask. We have a high priest, a great high priest, with the grace and mercy we need in the trials we face. So I'm going to ask us right now for the next maybe two minutes for you to bow your head, knowing that God's mercy has removed your sinfulness. He invites you into his throne room of grace, He wishes to pour grace into your life this morning, right now. So bow your head and talk to him in your mind. Tell him what you're struggling with. Thank him that he is going to pour grace into your life. Jesus, thank you for walking into the throne room with us for providing that access so freely to the Father. And you've given us a throne of grace. We need your grace this morning individually. This church needs your grace corporately. Father, we don't even fully know what we need but we know we need you to do surgery on our hearts. We recoil from your holiness, but you have given us the holiness of Jesus Christ. So change us. Thank you for meeting with each one of us individually here this morning. Thank you for listening to our hearts as we cry out to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you holding fast and drawing near this morning? Are you submitting yourself to God's healing word? As he calls you into the throne room of grace, are you recoiling or are you daily spending time with him and his word? And as you approach God, are you approaching a throne of judgment or a throne of grace? And if you're here this morning and you are approaching a throne of judgment, there is a different way. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ, he has made a way for you and for me that you can approach the throne of grace. God has given us eternal life It's available to each person here who places their faith in Jesus Christ by faith in his death and resurrection. I I challenge you this morning to try.
trust Christ if that's not something you have done and, and say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Please be my Savior. And for the rest of us, as we struggle in our spiritual walks with following after Christ, would you allow his living, active, holy word of God to do its work in your life?